Today, though, we're wrapping up our five-week series that we have titled All In. It kind of uh, culminates today. I've got a a kind of a a different sort of sermon for you today, and honestly, I'm not sure that you're ready for it. I'm not sure I'm ready for it. So uh, I'm going to ask you to, to bow your heads, if you would, and ask the Holy Spirit to take this message and deliver it to your heart in the way that he wants to, okay? And that you would be receptive to that. Spirit of God, I pray the same thing for myself today. Lord, I I do not want uh, your people, and I know you don't want your people to hear this sermon today and be filled with shame or covered over with guilt, but you want us to be motivated And you want to give us incentive, Lord, to go all in with you. So I pray that you would take us to a deeper place today, a place of deeper devotion and loyalty and allegiance to to Jesus Christ, whom you love and whom we love. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen. Well, since uh, this sermon's going to feel kind of heavy, I want to start out on the lighter side, okay? So out on the farm... The hen and the pig got together and decided they wanted to do something nice for Farmer John. I'm getting a little bit of a ring up here, uh, Nate, if you could turn that down a little bit. The hen said, hey, I know what, let's cook him a nice breakfast. And the pig thought that was a great idea. How about, how about pancakes, he suggested. No, that's too bland. They thought some more. I know what, said the hen, let's cook him a big plate of bacon and eggs. And uh, the pig thought about that for a moment and frowned. Easy for you to say, he said. For you, that means making a contribution. For me, that's total commitment. (laughs) No bacon without total commitment, right? (laughs) Well, we wanted to start this new year by reminding ourselves and each other that Our Lord Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was totally committed to us, all in for us. I mean, when you think about it, it's pretty stunning to stop and consider what Jesus gave up to come here, what he took on in order to become one of us, and what he suffered to secure our place in the family of God. Jesus Christ, I would say, was and is the very definition of being all in. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, he was the living, perfect embodiment of total commitment. Jesus was. We saw that Jesus challenged his followers to be all in too, right? All in with him. That's not only the logical response to his sacrifice for us, but it's also, I believe, the natural reflex, the natural reflex of a heart that's been electrified by the gospel, which is something that I know a number of you have experienced. It's a heart that cries out, Jesus, thank you, thank you. You are truly all in for me. How can I not be all in for you? Then we look further into the scriptures and we saw that being all in with Jesus means being all in with Jesus' church, right? His body here on the earth. And we considered what that might mean for each of us in the areas of serving him and giving generously to his work and loving one another and also for joining Jesus on his continuing mission of helping other people become all in with him as well. And so this series culminates today 
And in a few minutes, I'm going to challenge you to put pen to paper and make a thoughtful and prayerful commitment to cultivating in your life some of those key markers of all-in Christianity. And I'm asking the Lord to lead you in that and to give you the grace to cooperate with His Spirit who is at work in you. So as I prayed about what to, what to say in this message today, I, I couldn't shake the sense that the Lord wanted me to break from my typical pattern a bit. I think He wants me to share with you some of my favorite all-in scriptures and then illustrate them through sharing some stories of some of my favorite all-in heroes, people who possessed a legendary commitment to Jesus. These were not perfect people by any means, certainly not in the same league with Jesus Christ. And yet they were men and women who became so captivated by Jesus that, that they were willing to risk it all for him. I think it's a good thing. I, I think you would agree with me. It's a good and healthy thing to be reminded from time to time that, that we here in the 21st century stand on the shoulders of sold-out saints from ages past. People who went before us, who sought to walk that Calvary road of total commitment to Jesus. And I think we do well to let their lives and, yes, even their deaths inspire us and challenge us. So here we go, all right? If you haven't pulled out the study guide yet, you can track with me uh, by looking at that. Some white space on there as well if you want to take some notes. First, some of my favorite all-in verses from the Bible. These are verses that I go to when I'm starting to feel complacent, starting to feel apathetic, or I feel like my passion for Jesus is waning. So just listen to these scriptures. Mark 8, we hear the voice of Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The Apostle Paul would write this to the Philippians. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The same man wrote this later, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In the last book of the Bible, John, the apostle, speaking of the great martyrs, would say this, they have conquered him, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, 
by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Those verses make me a little bit uncomfortable, do they you? But they also challenge me, they also inspire me, they tell me what Jesus Christ is really worth. They tell me what Jesus Christ is really after in his followers. And so let me share with you some of the all-in people whom I admire greatly for being sold out to Jesus. People who denied themselves, who counted everything loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Many of whom loved not their lives even unto death. People like Stephen. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Do you know about this guy? We read about him in Acts chapter 6 and 7. <clears throat> That's Stephen with a PH. My parents told me that I was actually named after this Stephen. Like, not a lot to live up to, right? <laughs> Stephen was an amazing man. I'm pretty sure I'll never live up to his testimony or his legacy. He's described in the book of Acts as being full of the Spirit and wisdom, full of God's grace, full of faith, full of God's power, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. In other words, this man, Stephen, was full of God. He was full of God. And in those early days of that infant church, that embryonic congregation there in Jerusalem, Stephen got some people agitated, didn't he, because of his bold witness for Jesus, and he got himself hauled in before the high council to defend himself, and standing there under the, the, the glaring disdain of the religious elite of his day, Stephen gave a speech, it's really an impromptu speech, that showed the, the command that he had of, of the story of redemption. You can read it in Acts chapter 7. And when I read it, I, I asked myself, could I do that? Do I know the storyline of the Bible well enough to just spout it out on a moment's notice? That Stephen did. And when he was done, he closed it out by looking at those same religious leaders. And he said this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, <clears throat> excuse me, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. How do you think that went over? Even though he knew his fate rested in their hands. He, he refused to back off. He refused to tone it down. And they became so outraged at his, his tone and his rebuke that they immediately took Stephen outside the city and they stoned him. And it says, while the rocks were pelting his body, he looked up and he saw Jesus. The, the clouds parted. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and he, and he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? So that was Stephen. Sold out Stephen, a man with steel in his spine, loving not his life unto death, losing his life for the sake of the gospel. Truly an all-in type of guy. A century later, there was another notable Christian martyr. His name was Polycarp. 
Aren't you glad your parents didn't name you? Polycarp. Poly, many, carpos, fruit, the many-fruited one, the much-fruited one. His life turned out that way. This guy lived in the 100s A.D. He was, he was a pastor, actually, a pastor of a Christian church in a city called Smyrna over in modern-day Turkey. It's interesting, Polycarp was likely the, the last living person to have known one of Jesus' apostles personally. Tradition tells us that he had been mentored by the Apostle John. Polycarp was known to be faithful to Christ all throughout his life. He was a beloved pastor and highly revered and respected for his um, faithfulness to teaching the truth of God's word. Problem was, though, that Polycarp lived under the sway of the great Roman Empire. And, of course, they had their emperor worship and they had their whole pantheon of, of gods. And so when Polycarp was an old man, his lifelong theological clash with the authorities finally came to a head. There was a large stadium in the city there where the townspeople would regularly gather to be entertained. Now we have our Super Bowl, right? Where uh, people watch a contest in a stadium. This was a little different. The, the contest was more of a blood sport. It was Christians who would be thrown into this arena and then these wild, vicious animals would be released and there would be this contest. On this particular day, there was a Christian man named Germanicus who got shoved into that arena and um, he fought as gamely as he could for as long as he good, could until finally he was overcome and that just kind of fed the bloodthirsty crowd, and they clamored for more, and they started calling out Polycarp's name. They wanted him. At the time, he was living in another town. There was an eyewitness there who later wrote down an account of what happened next. He wrote this. The police and the horsemen came at supper time on Friday with their usual weapons, as if coming out against a robber. That evening, they found Polycarp lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped, but he refused, saying, May God's will be done. They were amazed at this man, his age, his steadfastness, and some of them said, Why did we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? Immediately, Polycarp called for food and drink for his guests, and then he asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted. And they agreed, and he stood up and he prayed so full of the grace of God that he could not stop praying for two hours. The men were astounded, and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. When he had finished praying, they put him on a donkey and took him back to the city. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice then when the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar, and the proconsul asked him whether he was indeed Polycarp, and upon hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, to deny the faith, saying, have respect for your old age, man, swear by the fortune of Caesar, swear and reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp replied with this very famous statement, maybe you've heard it. He said, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul said, I've got wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. Well, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. Polycarp responded, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, then is extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Ready to be an acceptable burnt offering to God, he looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs. Sharing the cup of Christ and resurrection to eternal life, may I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice to you. And he was consumed in the flames. Church, let's not forget that we live in the wake of many brave, all-in men and women from ages past, some of whom, like Polycarp, made the ultimate sacrifice to take a stand in loyalty to Jesus. This next story I first heard back when I was in college, it's called The Story of the Thundering Legion, and it, it moved me, it rocked me back then, and it still moves me today. I can only bear to tell it about every seven years or so. I looked up, last time I shared it here was in 2010, so it's time. <laughs> this story took place in about 320 A.D., again over in modern-day Turkey. It's the story of a group of 40 Roman soldiers who became known as the Thundering Legion. These 40 men had decided to give their lives to Jesus, and they would have to pay a price for that decision. The account reads like this, Governor Agricola spoke mildly but firmly. He had some good and strong warriors in front of him. He needed them, but they must be brought into line. I am told you refuse to offer the sacrifice that has been ordered by Emperor Licinius, he said. One of the soldiers, Camdidus, answered on behalf of the rest, we will not sacrifice. To do so is to betray our holy faith. Nothing is dearer of greater honor to us than Christ our God. But what about your comrades? Consider you alone of Caesar's troops defy him. Think of the disgrace you'll bring upon your legion. How can you do it? They replied, to disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is more terrible still. A note of exasperation crept into the governor's voice. Give up this stubborn folly. You have no Lord but Caesar. In his name, I promise promotion. To the first one of you who steps forward and does his duty. He paused for a moment, expecting his lure would break their ranks. But none of them moved. Again, Camdidus replied, You're offering us money that remains behind. You offer us glory that fades away. You seek to make us friends of the emperor, but alienate us from the true king. We only desire one gift, the crown of righteousness. We love honors, but those of heaven. The governor switched tactics. So you persist in your rebellion. Then I tell you, prepare for torture, for prison, for death. This is your last chance. Will you obey your emperor? The soldiers stood firm, although they well knew the governor would carry out his threat. They spoke, nothing you could offer us would replace what we would lose in the next world. As for your threats, we've learned to deny our bodies where the welfare of our souls is at stake. 
You threaten fearful torments and call our godliness a crime, but you will not find us faint-hearted or attached to this life or easily stricken with terror. For the love of God, we are prepared to endure any kind of torture. And so, flustered and angry, Agricola ordered, flog them. Pairs of guards seized each man and dragged them out into the cold where they were tied to posts and whipped. Unbelievably, although their flesh was bruised and their skin was tattered and their blood flowed, not one of the 40 surrendered. And this just enraged the governor even more. Now he wanted them to die a slow and painful death. And so they were stripped completely naked and herded to the middle of a frozen lake. He sent soldiers to guard them to prevent any from coming back to shore and escaping. You will stand naked out there on the ice until you agree to sacrifice to the gods. Agricola could hardly believe what his eyes saw next. Even though he had issued the order, the rebels began to strip off their own clothes and run out towards the pond in the freezing air. We are soldiers of the Lord. We fear no hardship, shouted one. What is our death but entrance into eternal life? And striking up a song, the men marched out onto the frozen pond. Well, to increase their torment, baths of steaming hot water were placed all around the lake. With these, the governor hoped to weaken the firm resolve of these freezing men, and he told them, you may come ashore when you're ready to deny your faith. But none did. The 40 encouraged each other as though they were going to battle They said, how many of our companions in arms fell on the battlefront, showing themselves loyal to an earthly king? Is it possible for us to fail to sacrifice our lives in faithfulness to the one true king? Let us not turn aside, O brothers. Let us not turn our backs in flight from the devil. And they spent the night courageously bearing their pain and rejoicing in the hope of soon being with the Lord. The sun sank behind the hills. Upon the night air could be heard a prayer. Lord, there are 40 of us engaged in this battle. Grant that 40 may be crowned and not one missing from this sacred number. Standing on the shore, the shivering guard shouted into the night, Don't be idiots! What's the point? Come on out, warm yourselves in the baths. But the soldiers began to cry out now, O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain thy victory. The mother of the youngest soldier was present there. And coming to a point where she was not able to stand it any longer, she called out and she enticed her son to abandon the others. And finally, he he did weaken in the icy cold and crawled off the ice and into the baths. But when Sempronius, one of the Roman guards standing on the shore, saw the young man desert his friends on the ice, he surprised everybody by suddenly removing his armor and throwing off his clothes. And he ran out to join the remaining 39 naked men on the ice, crying out loudly, I am a Christian too! Then their cry resumed with more vigor, O Lord, 40 wrestlers have come to fight For thee, grant that forty wrestlers may gain thy victory. When the sun rose in the morning, Agricola was told that the forty were all dead. Well, get the bodies off the ice, he commanded. Burn them. Dump the ashes in the river. The guards backed a wagon as near the pond as they could. They began to stack the stiff corpses onto it. Then a bizarre twist occurred. 
Hey, we've got a live one here, one of the guards shouted. There's one still alive. It's Melito. Poor fellow. He's just a kid, a local boy too. And that's his mom over there. The soldier beckoned to the woman and she came near. Listen, mother, take your boy home. Save his life if you can. We'll look the other way. What kind of talk is that, scolded the woman. She seemed genuinely upset. The guards looked at each other in astonishment. Would you cheat my son of his crown? I'll never let that happen. As the wagon began to roll away, she lifted her son with her peasant's strength, hoisting him in with the others. Go, son, she cried. Go to the end of this happy journey with your comrades so that you won't be the last to present yourself before God. I mean, can we even imagine that level of devotion to Christ? When I think about people like this, my mind thinks of others. I think of Perpetua. Perpetua, the amazingly strong woman who loved Jesus so much that, that she too was willing to die for Christ in the arena. I remember telling you her story a little over a year ago. I think of John Huss, who was burnt at the stake in 1415 for refusing to back down from his convictions. And did you know that this is the 500th, this year, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation. Did you know that? I think we should also remember those courageous reformers who risked life and limb to stand up to the abuses and the aberrant teachings of the Roman Catholic Church of the day back in the 1500s. And in so doing, they changed the course of history. We're here today worshiping Jesus in a Protestant church as a result of their efforts and their sacrifice. Recently, I've been reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Heard of him? Bonhoeffer. The Lutheran pastor whose devotion to Jesus during World War II cost him his life. He was involved in that plot to try to take out Adolf Hitler, and it, it failed, and, and, and he got found out. He was trying to resist the, the satanic evils and atrocities that were taking place in Germany during that era. It cost him his life. He was hung in the gallows for his part in the resistance movement. Bonhoeffer was an all-in kind of guy. He once wrote this, it's only because Jesus became like us that we can become like him. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'm thinking about people in our own day who gave it all. Who can forget the images of those 21 martyrs over in Libya? Remember? Just two years ago, we were all horrified to see those men in orange jumpsuits being led down the beach by their captors, their hooded captors. Something I didn't know, recently I came across a report that claims that while the ISIS terrorists had announced that 21 men would be executed, actually only 20 names were confirmed as being Egyptian Coptic Christians. So who was the one non-Egyptian victim? 
One Canadian news source was able to gather information about this man. He, he came from the, the nation of Chad. When his captors forced him to renounce Jesus Christ or die, he looked over at his slain Christian friends and he replied, their God is my God. And he gave his life along with his comrades. When you saw those images, those photos, I'm sure you had the same thought that I did. Would I be willing to do that? Would I be willing to do that? How committed am I to Jesus Christ? I mean, I know that he's committed to me, but how committed am I to him? I heard a story about a church in another country. This was a while back. In that country, open displays of faith and worship of Christianity were frowned upon. The one Sunday, some believers gathered together in a building for worship, <clears throat> when all of a sudden the doors flew open and the sanctuary was stormed by masked soldiers with guns drawn. One of those soldiers went to the front and in a stern tone he growled, allegiance to Jesus Christ is no longer permitted in this country. We've been sent here to find out who is breaking the law. And one by one, the soldiers pointed the muzzle of their weapon into the face of each person in the room and asked, to whom do you give your allegiance, Jesus Christ or the state? Those who had pledged their allegiance to the state were allowed to, to leave. They were released. And those who did not were forced to the front of the room. Finally, the only ones left in the room were those who had sworn their supreme loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And the soldiers closed the doors and then they laid down their guns, took off their masks, and said, we're actually followers of Jesus too. We just wanted to know who the real Christians were. We've come to worship him with you. I wonder if it came down to that. I wonder, would my own commitment to Christ stand the ultimate test? In 1980, a young man from Rwanda was forced by the soldiers of his tribe to either renounce Christ or face certain death. And he decided to refuse to renounce Christ. And on the spot, he was executed. He was killed. But later on, a note was discovered in his room. He apparently had scrawled out the night before. And here's what it said. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence or prosperity or position or promotion or popularity. I can't be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My, my way is rough, my companions are few, but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. 
I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till everyone knows, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me because my colors will be clear. You say, Pastor Steve, this is pretty intense. I mean, really, do we have to die to show that we really love Jesus? Doesn't Jesus want us to live for him? And the answer is yes. Yes, for sure. Truth is that you and I won't ever be willing to die for Jesus unless we're willing to live for him, right? But that's just it. None of us today have a knife at our throat. None of us is facing the choice some of those folks faced, deny Jesus or lose your life. We don't have that situation. But what we do have, listen, what we do have is one more day, right? One more week, perhaps. A few more months. Maybe a few years. Maybe even a few decades left to live for Jesus. To live for him, that's what he's called us to. And so when I think of that, I ask, what are we waiting for before deciding to go all in with Jesus? I mean, seriously, what are you waiting for before offering him your whole life and the remainder of your days? I believe that being all in and living for Jesus is really a journey that involves taking some very important steps. Of course, the first step, right, is to trust Jesus' sacrifice on that cross as being enough to cover all of your sins before God. And then repenting of those sins and trusting your whole life to Jesus as your only Lord and Savior. That's, that's the moment of salvation, right? That's the moment of conversion. That's being saved. That's being born again through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first step. That step. Maybe you're here today and that's the step you need to take. Trusting, putting your whole faith, transferring your trust from yourself to Jesus to make you right with God. Then the next step is to get baptized in water. To signify your allegiance to Jesus by going under the water and being raised back up again. Which pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of your Lord. He instructed all of his followers, all of them, to do that. The only one in the scriptures who didn't get baptized was the thief who was hanging on the cross. Well, I guess that's a good reason to not follow through with being baptized, but short of that, be baptized. Our Lord did it himself, and he calls his followers to. And then... It's hugely important for your walk with Christ and your relationship with Him, your devotion to Him, to get connected with a local body of believers, right? A local church, a congregation of baptized believers, fellow travelers on this journey, so that you can grow together, 
and, and spur each other on to deeper devotion to Christ. Remember, being all in with Christ means being all in with his church. And then this. Down through the centuries, followers of Jesus have sought to put into practice some, some holy habits, or I've heard them called rhythms of grace, that have served to keep their hearts soft towards the Lord and their, their affections fastened on Christ and their priorities aligned with God's priorities. I'm talking about daily disciplines like Bible reading and prayer. Do you ever get beyond Bible reading and prayer as a Christian? I don't think that you do. It's like eating and breathing. It's just what our spiritual life requires. Daily disciplines like Bible reading and prayer, weekly rhythms like what we're doing right now, gathering with God's people for worship, weekly rhythms like coming together in a small group with a few other fellow travelers who are getting to know you and you're getting to know them and you're sharing life together and you're praying for each other and they know your kids and they, they pray for your kids, they know your children's names, this small group gospel community, these little platoons of believers that come together weekly so important. It's what those believers in the early church did. They met in homes. Then there's the holy habits of giving generously to God's work. Generously investing in God's kingdom work through your local church. And then serving in ministry. Serving your brothers and sisters in the ministry. How about this next one? Yielding control moment by moment to the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn more about that as we study Acts together. Yielding control, letting go of the wheel of your life, saying, Holy Spirit, you drive. You drive. It says walk in the Spirit. That's taking each step in conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you make this decision in me and through me right now. Give me wisdom to see things as you see right now. Help me forgive this person who has offended me. There's that. Some of your fellow Christians here in this room have even linked up with a spiritual partner to meet with regularly, to encourage each other and hold each other accountable and, and meet usually over coffee. I don't know why, that's just popular, I guess. Come together regularly over coffee, talk about your lives, give permission to each other to ask questions to poke around in your heart, find out what's going on down deep with the real you. Serving on a short-term missions team is another way to expand your vision and to keep cultivating a heart that beats in sync with the heart of God so that the things that God loves become the things that you love. Following me on this? These are some of these initial steps towards a deeper devotion to Christ. 